This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilari Mäkelä. Today's episode is about the science of law. This is a topic that I want to explore in this and future episodes from various angles that are not only scientifically rigorous, but also in a sense humanely understandable, that are not just about the brain chemistry or about the brain areas associated with law, but that are about ways that the scientific perspective can help us appreciate, analyze, and excel in this most significant art of living. My guest today is Ruth Feldman. Feldman is a professor of neuroscience who, before her work as a scientist, used to be a jazz musician. And her research has this really wonderful quality of being able to merge these two strands of her life together. Her lab has been at the very forefront of this really staggering research paradigm of studying ways that love and other forms of human bonding can literally synchronize our brains. Or in more technical language, they can increase the level of synchrony between the brain oscillations in various bands of two or more brains. Now, if you wonder how on earth this can be true, I must say that the most up-to-date information is that we really don't know, but the effect is there. And Feldman is one of the best people in the world to talk about that staggering effect. This conversation also contains a load of information about parenting, whether it's about postpartum depression, or striking research done at Feldman's own lab about gay parenting. As always, there is a full list of technical terms and names mentioned in this show that you can find in the show notes. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. I bring to you Ruth Feldman. Professor Ruth Feldman, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. You study the neurobiology of attachment, of bonding, fundamentally the brain basis for love. I know that some people find this uncomfortable. Uh, As an extreme example, I remember my upstairs neighbor once declared to me that uh, he doesn't believe in love because it will soon be discovered that it's just another chemical in the brain. (laughs) Now, I presume that you uh, disagree with the sentiment that for you studying the neurobiology of love is not a way to diminish it, but rather to deepen our appreciation of it. Am I correct? I think when it comes to love, in fact, love is one of the most celebrated topics in human literature and cinema and dance. But I think that the conceptual or behavioral aspects of love have been described for centuries, even for millennia. And the biology of human love is is a component, is, is an element that still has to be woven into this tapestry of the artistic and the literary and the social and even the economic component of love. And it, this is where my work comes to show that it's, it in fact is to increase the scope of our understanding of love rather than limit it or say that it's just chemical. And this is a story that hasn't been told yet, and it has to be unfolded, has to be incorporated into the wider story of love that that humans as a race have been telling from generation to generation. I think there's also another important aspect to study the biology of love is because our notion of love is that something that comes and go, we have no control of it, it's something that dawns upon us, 
some kind of uh, Disney, perhaps sometimes childish understanding of what is love. And I think the science of love gives the viewpoint, the perspective on love, some rigor that love is not just something that dawns upon you or leaves you. It's something that, that you can work on. It's something that you can be meticulous about. So something we could be serious about. Love belongs to the person who works. Love is something like science that has few moments of eureka and then many, many, many stretches of hard work. And a scientific perspective on love, I think, brings some rigor or a different set of tools by which we can view love that I think is particularly important for our generation. You know, having raised my children and, and being in a, in a loving marriage for many, many, many years. I got married when I was 20. I had my first child when I was 22. I think there's some seriousness to love. It's not just this moment of rapture. And I think a scientific viewpoint on love is, is timely. Well, another interesting, I think, um, spin-off from this worry that love is just a chemical in the brain is that you certainly talk about chemicals in, in your work. I think oxytocin would be very high up on the list, but your work goes beyond this. One way to say this would be to say that a loving relationship is not just in the head, it's a relationship. And just like a, a symphony is not just inside a single instrument, it's, it's in, in the relationship between instruments. We kind of tacitly accept this, I think, in our vocabulary. We say that, oh, that would date went really well, you know, we synced well. Or we might say with my partner, you know, some days we say, oh, you know, today we're not really in sync and we're not syncing well today. And we, we all know what this means behaviorally, experientially, but it really surprised me to realize just how literally this can be true, just how literally love can be about or is about being in sync, whether we're talking about romantic love or parent-infant love. Could you talk a little bit about that? I remember very strongly that sense of synchrony at the time when I was a teenager, I was in college, I was playing jazz. And those moments when you sync during jazz playing, during improvisation, and everybody knows exactly where everybody else is and when everybody cuts in and pulls out. And there is that sense, I dare say, of transcendence, that, that there is something about the music making that you get out of yourself and that you part of a, of a whole that through shared time, you make meaning. And when my career started and I realized I am not going to be a musician and I wanted to be a scientist to examine that very experience, when you look at it and when you think about human transcendence, it usually involves some kinds of synchronous action, like in houses of prayer or cultural rituals, or even in the sports field when everybody is hugely excited about something that happens or in, in joint marching or running, or when you feel yourself part of a crowd where the fate of the crowd is your fate, there is something that transcends your limits, your own boundaries. 
And this is based on actual synchrony between my movements and your movements, my brain oscillation, your brain rhythms, uh, my oxytocin release and your oxytocin release. It has a biological basis to it, but it transcends beyond the biology. And I think over here, most social neuroscience are spinozistic, that there's no uh, differentiation. We're, we're away from the Cartesian model of division of brain and brain and body or body and soul. There is this notion that everything we feel or believe or intend has a trace in our biology, has a trace in our brain. And love, synchrony, transcendence, empathy, those are concepts, but they have a trace in our brain and a trace in the relationship, which could be mathematical and exact and scientific and falsifiable, but it also transcends that into the mind, the soul, the, the experience of love, the experience of love. You just quickly mentioned there about how love can literally manifest itself as synchrony between brain oscillations of two people. I mean, when I first read about this, I thought this was wild. I mean, this is almost too good to be true. It's, it's too poetically good to be so scientifically, mathematically, rigorously true, but it's not. Your lab, for example, has found that the level of synchrony between, for example, a parent and a child predicts the strength of their relationship, predicts the social, emotional maturity of the child later on. Right. This is just, it's wild. <laughs> you know, it's really wild. Yeah, the, the brain synchrony between parent and child, for instance, and we studied it in other forms of love between lovers who live together, like married couple, or even between close friends. And we found that those individuals show greater brain synchrony and greater behavioral synchrony. And I think this is one of the strengths of our model is showing that biobehavioral feedback loop. Our model is called biobehavioral synchrony, which means that it's behavior-based the kind of synchrony, synchronous behavior. We look at each other, we smile together, we move together, we dance together, we become familiar with each other's rhythms. These induce brain-to-brain -brain synchrony. And the notion that things are behavioral-based to me is wonderful particularly wonderful as clinician. And we see it now with our work in, with depressed moms. Depressed moms have very, very little parenting behavior. They don't synchronize with their kids. They don't touch their kids. They barely look at their kids. They don't do face-to-face, -face, you know, the regular coo and peekaboo with their kids. Everything is very muted. And when you look at their brain in the network that underpins human attachment, it's literally gray. You get this fMRI outputs and rather than shining in all kinds of colors, you see gray. The mother isn't excited. Her reward structures aren't activated. 
by seeing or playing or remembering her infant. And you have to trigger it. And there is very, very little brain-to-brain synchrony. And you say, what would I do to help that cycle trigger? You teach them to synchronize behaviorally through literally working with them on how to behave to their infant. It's called video feedback. We videotape them. We take the video to the lab. We microcode the video. We show the mother those very, very few episodes when she was connecting with a child, even if it's 10 seconds out of seven minutes. And then we teach the mother step by step. We decompose it. Mutual gazing is interaction, mutual smiling. You see in eight sessions, not only that the interaction becomes so much more joyous and so much more coordinated, but that their biomarkers go up. The suppressed level of oxytocin goes up in mother and in baby. And the brain-to-brain synchrony begins to activate. And it's grounded in behavior, behavior that is coordinated and enjoyable. What about in loving relationships? I, I, I earlier alluded to the idea that I, I guess in any loving relationships, you also find these moments or, or these days when you're like, I oh, you know we weren't really thinking. <laughs> what did, what, what's the science-based tool in those moments? In the moments where synchrony goes out the window? Out the window, not even in a very dramatic way, just feel. So I, I, I think people have a wrong notion about synchrony. The notion that synchrony is a perfect match. And, you know, a perfect match between the biology of two individuals, you will only find in one occasion, two brain dead people sitting one next to each other in a hospital bed, and there is a machine pumping their heart. That would be perfect. Any living organism, two living organisms, will never be in perfect synchrony. Certainly not two humans whose brain are so enlarged and complex. There is no way that there is no need and there is no way. So synchrony is basically a process where there are brief episodes of match and longer episodes of mismatch where, you know, we connect and then one goes one way, you know, we laugh together and then you say something and I say something or you go into your own thoughts and I go into my thoughts or things don't really work between us. I thought you'd do the dishes and you thought I'll take the garbage, etc. So there's very brief and intense. You see it even in brain oscillation or in behavior, very brief moments of sync. And then there's longer episodes of no sync. I would say between mother and infants, it's about a third to sync and, and about two thirds. But that cycle of mismatch and reparation or match and mismatch goes across many, many time cycle, many timelines. So it goes along the second by second level of the interaction. It goes about the day by day level because some days you're better with your partner and some are less. Some days you're a better mother and some days you're stressed at work. And then in the length of the relationship, so think about the mother-child or the parent-child relationship from birth to adulthood. And there are some parents who are terrific 
in a certain stage, like some mothers are very good with a dependent infant and are doing much less well with an autonomous adolescent. Okay, so they can synchronize better with certain topics. And then there are other who don't enjoy very much the dependence, but when the child is six, seven, eight, they are terrific in sharing their world with a child or empathizing with a child or introducing the child to what interests them and their hobbies and etc. So synchrony, the mismatch and repair can occur at the level of the entire relationship. And the notion is to find the moment or the topics or the days that you synchronize and capitalize on them, you know, gives the relationship some food to go on for the rainy days, like the ants, you know, you collect the food for the winter and then know that some days or some moments or some seconds or some stretches are less matched and be able to, to talk about it, to recognize it, to acknowledge it, and to realize that it's all part of the cycle of the cycle of life, the cycle of love. It has the four seasons in it. So I guess one of the, the science-based tools for those moments when synchrony suddenly doesn't feel like it's there would be to just accept that it's not always there. Exactly. Or to know that the fact that it's not always there is actually a blessing to the relationship. Mm -hmm. Just like the leaves falling down is necessary for regrowth. Mm -hmm. And there's, there is that kind of rhythm to life and rhythm to love and rhythm to relationship. Yes, yes. There is this moments of bloom when oxytocin and dopamine in your subcortical brain just match together and oxytocin brings the social focus and dopamine brings the reward and motivation. This sink of oxytocin and dopamine deep there in your dopamine factory and nucleus accumbens in the VTA. And then the, those are moments of great joy and synchrony and social focus and empathy and reward and ecstasy. And then there are the moments where you separate or you ponder or you slow down or you let the leaves fall. You are in winter. One must have a, a mind of winter, I think. It's uh, one of the nice poems by Wallace Stephen. One must have a mind of winter. And to get to the spring, what would it be? Mutual gaze, rhythmic movements. Right. So, so I think mutual gaze is a, is a universal, I think. Some cultures use it more than others and, and also very clear in any human social relationship. I mean, you stand online and Starbucks for coffee. So how do you know your turn is on? You and the person who makes coffee, you share your gaze and then they give you and then they avert it and they turn to the next customer. So moments of, of meeting, of social connection, whether familiar or stranger, loved one or not loved one, they, they build on shared gaze. But then there are culture-specific features or, or signals or symbols so some cultures do. In every culture, there are yearly rituals that often involve some kind of joint movement or joint prayer or dance. So synchrony has been a very, very powerful tool in human uh, societies, I would say, across history and cultural communities to 
to make us connect to one another, define the in-group, define the family and the society. Also, unfortunately, to derogate those who aren't us. So basically, and I've done some work on that, showing that the biology of love and the biology of hatred are basically based on the same system, the same oxytocin that supports our love to our kin and bonding and family formation and group formation and empathy. They also, oxytocin also support outgroup der derogation and ethnocentricity. We How much is that the case? I've seen very conflicting data on this. We actually talked about this in the episode with Patricia Churchland. We both ended up being very agnostic about the, the strength of that result because I, I've seen data that speaks in favor of that. But then also, I think in one of your articles, I learned that even with strangers, for example, having eye contact with a stranger has a positive oxytocin response. There seems to be also this capacity to just very rapidly sync with strangers, not just with our family, not just with our loved ones. So it seems to be that in a way, to the extent that the, the seeds of xenophobia are, are, are baked into oxytocin, well, maybe the solution is also, or, or, or what do you think about that issue? So, so I think a synchrony can, can happen with, with, in various degree with our loved ones and with strangers. Yes. Not sure that eye contact with a stranger or eye contact with a stranger will not in of itself uh, activate your oxytocin system. But it's definitely consistent, put together two strangers in a collaborative task, and you would see brain-to-brain -brain synchrony. I think the question then comes to, and we, I agree that we don't have good data, not, not from my lab, and I'm not sure about other lab, but that what happened when someone is perceived as an enemy. And I think our system is much more welcoming to a stranger I meet the stranger in the street, or there are experiments. Most of the brain-to-brain -brain study, in fact, involved strangers, that two people were asked to do some synchronized or collaborative or cooperative movement together. And then they showed that while they are cooperating, they do need to take into account the other person's movement and intention and goals that you do need to incorporate in a predictive way, the brain activity of the other person when you want to, to, to do a collaborative action. The question is what happened when fear gets in a way. So it is not the fact that someone is a stranger as such. Right. It would not be evolutionarily viable to activate your free response to anyone any student that you don't know that's coming into the room or in your work group, the work group of strangers, you are now going to activate your fear response. But when somebody is marked as a potential enemy or threat, whether it's from an enemy, you know, in my country, there are, there are clearly generations of fear about the, the, other, the other culture. Sometimes it's racial. You know, there's, there's somebody from another race is marked as dangerous. And I think here, it, a lot of time it filters, or we have even evidence showing that it filters top down. For instance, in the brain basis of empathy, when we measured the brain basis of empathy to the pain, Israeli youth of Palestinian and Palestinian of Israeli. So the brain basis of empathy works on an automatic quick response of a half a second, and then a more cognitive response that is longer, that is more top-down. And we saw that 
the brain automatic response to the pain of in-group and out-group was identical and happened to the in-group and the out-group. We have this half a second of grace where we embrace the humanity of all and we empathize with the suffering of all. And after that half a second, those top-down mechanisms that are more cognitive but are critically needed for us to understand what the pain is about and plan a way of helping, those shut down, they only activate to your in-group and they shut down to your out-group. This, in fact, was the basis of our intervention for Israeli and Palestinian youth, 16 to 18 year old. We built an intervention specifically understanding the affiliative matrix and getting to know each other and doing a lot of poetry reading and scripture reading and cultural activity and dancing and moving together and learning how to dialogue a conflict in a synchronous way. So in those sessions, they learned about affiliation, about prejudice, about empathy, about conflict and how to dialogue them. And at the end, we show that this altered their brain response. It's like opening empathy to human being rather than opening empathy just to your, to your loved circle, to your, to your tribe, to your family. Very interesting. Fascinating. Of course, this has a lot of practical consequences, but I'm also interested in what is the role of oxytocin in human relationships with strangers, I think is such a fascinating question because, for example, in one of your papers, you write, quote, unlike other mammals, which require familiarity with conspecifics for biobehavioral synchrony, humans display behavioral synchrony towards strangers, unquote. And we talked about this also with, uh, with Patricia Churchland about how for her, the origins of our care, our morality is in our being creatures that are born very immature which requires care in, first of all, in the evolution from the mother to the offspring later on from, from other caregivers, and then how this, is, this spreads to all other kinds of contexts where we care. Right. But then the question is, well, so clearly, as, as your quote also suggests, sometimes we do care about these total strangers. Right. Sometimes we don't, and sometimes it suggests that it is the loving brain that is also responsible for this, right. this stigmatization of the enemy. And I guess one of the clean ways to attempt an answer would be to say, oh, yeah, well, if it's a stranger within our group, then we can love them. If it's a stranger from an out group, then we cannot. But I don't think it cuts that need. I mean, the, any, war, any good war novel will have these moments where you suddenly see face to face with an individual from the enemy and, and the dynamic changes completely. It's no more this faceless right. enemy with a capital E. It's this person. Exactly. This is like loving us when he says the face of the other tell me. Thou shall not kill. The minute you face the other yes. in a face-to-face -face interaction yes. and you're able to see their eyes and synchronize and see their face, then it cannot it can no longer be a faceless enemy. And that activates the biology of care and the brain basis of empathy. I think it's true that humans, all mammals are born immature and require maternal caregiving, but like human, if you look at primate evolution, humans are the, the ones born with the most premature brain. We have with about 20 to 25% of our brain wiring and much, and the vast majority of our brain maturation occurs in the context of the maternal, the parental caregiving. 
and the culture, whatever surrounds the mother. So how the love we receive, how those systems, the systems of, of love are tuned in our early childhood to love and care and trust or or otherwise. Yes, the love from the mother or from the father. I, I'm not sure if I'm formulating this exactly correct, but in one of your talks, you said that, that, that in your lab, you found that the oxytocin uh, levels, am I correct, of caring uh, fathers are, are the same. They are equally high. So. Right. So we did a lot of work in fathers, not just in typical fathers, but also we followed for over a decade children who are growing with two fathers who had an infant by surrogacy. So these are children who are raised without mother from birth. And we show how the father's brain, when there is a need to protect the child, the father brain reorganizes and looks exactly that like the maternal brain when the father is the primary caregiver. And those kids, we are now seeing them, they're 12 years old. And we looked high and low in every hormone, every developmental skill. We look at their brain and we don't see difference as a group in children growing up with two dads and children growing up with two moms. But you do see very big differences between children growing up with sensitive and synchronous parents and those. So sensitivity and synchrony and putting the child first is a quality of a parent. It's not a quality of a gender. It's not mother or father. It's a person who is able to provide synchrony and love and care and consideration and empathy and regulation and warm socialization to the child is the one who would have the caring, would tune the child's brain to love and synchrony and openness. Fascinating. But I think you're right. We find as human, because of our large associative cortex, we can see a stranger in the street and we will help a stranger. I am not so sure that this is a quality that is found in other primates when someone is not familiar, not from their group. I'm very conscious of your time. So before we end, I do want to touch upon a couple of questions as quickly as possible. One is that we've mentioned this brain-to-brain -brain synchrony a lot. Then we've also mentioned oxytocin a lot. And we, whenever we mention oxytocin, it, it's kind of, at least I just lumped them in the same kind of loving brain stuff. What is the relationship between brain-to-brain -brain synchrony? This is something which has to do with brain oscillations, brain waves that we would measure with an EEG versus oxytocin, which is, which is a neuropeptide. It, it, they're not conceptually kind of on the same level. So what is the relationship between them? What do we know about the relationship between them? Or is it kind of a, a mystery still? I think these are two separate systems at two separate levels. So I think that because research on brain-to-brain -brain synchronies is pretty much in infancy, I would say it's, it's the last decade and it really mushroomed in the last five years. We don't really have too many studies that compare in the same study oxytocin levels and brain-to-brain -brain synchrony. Okay. We know that they are both expression of connection, 
between humans. There are both measures of how much you are oriented to someone else, to someone social. Yes. The second question I do want to ask before we end is what about those of us who did not have that wonderful synchronous experience in our childhood? I think you quoted John Bowlby who, who said that but it is in childhood that we learn to love. And there's a beautiful side to that. It just demonstrates how big of a gift uh, love can be in childhood, much more than, than any material gift that can be given. But there is a shadow over that, of course, which is that not all of us, us have that. I know of one study that your lab has conducted on how to improve outcomes after premature birth. So instead of having the child just in an incubator, get as much skin-to-skin -skin contact, kangaroo care as it is called, as much as possible, and, and you get excellent outcomes. But what about those who were born premature and they did not get kangaroo care? What about those whose moms or fathers were the primary caregivers and were depressed and they didn't get your wonderful intervention? Or whose moms had to go to work almost immediately after a childbirth because of the lack of proper uh, maternal and paternal leave? Um, something I, um, this research just demonstrates the, really the importance of having but not all countries do. So what do you do then as a teenager, as an adult who wants to love, wants to love properly and, and, and has, has love affairs and sees that it's possible, but that there are some, maybe some, some, some burden from that childhood? So I think what we know is that there is hope and the hope comes from a biological perspective, okay, not just from what we see as clinicians. Every time we fall in love, when we fall in love with a partner or we form a loving relationship with a close friend, the biology of love opens. And the biology of love is, is, a, is a biology of plasticity. Oxytocin is a system that's implicated in plasticity at all levels, at the cellular, at the molecular, at the brain, at the network assembly level, at the behavioral level. So oxytocin really is associated with neuroplasticity. It allows for a reorganization of the brain around the new love. You fall in love. All your thoughts, all your emotions, all your cognitions are around that person that two weeks ago you didn't even know. So there's something in your brain that has to open and incorporate that person into your own self. It's not just mental. It has to be embedded in neural and physiological system. And those systems that underpin love are systems that open and close the door. Because oxytocin is implicated from the beginning in band formation, in the first most important band of the human, during uterine contraction and milk letdown, when a baby is born from the mother's body and from the mother's time, and they become two coordinated time units that synchronize the system that supports it is oxytocin, oxytocin during birth. And every time you form a new relationship, oxytocin is involved. And then there's a reorganization of that network in the brain. And there's the potential for opening and opening the, the cage of yourself. And how do you get better? 
how do you do it better if you struggle? You notice that due to shadows from your childhood, not having learned that love, you struggle. You want to try, you can try to some extent, but you do struggle. What would be tools that are either tested by science or that you have good reason to believe work, whether it's, whether it's therapy, self-help, meditation, dance classes? I mean, what, what do you think works? Uh, I, I would say that all of the above that's, that are tools to trigger the biology of love, whether it's mentalization that calms the stress response and allows the biology of love to emerge, whether it's joint movement or dance or even loving actions and hugs and sexual activity, anything that's done in consideration of the other. And I think that therapy that allows you to understand how powerful is the shadows from the past and how the less than successful parenting shaped your brain. Understanding that synchrony is a process of uh, coordination and miscoordination, rapture and repair. And as humans, I think the biology of love tells us this hopeful story that there is a way to succeed even if you haven't succeeded in the past that each relationship brings new opportunities, not only mentally, but also biologically. That synchrony is a um, process of practice to learn who is the person, who is the other person, to match their rhythms, to understand their desire, to predict his or her brain state. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I think the biology of love is not limiting um, our school, but in fact, broadening it. Mm. I am very happy that we end on a, on a hopeful note. Loneliness is, is one of the major killers. It's a, one of the plagues of modern generation. And a lot of time people give up and don't try. Synchrony, empathy, the biology of love is out there for the picking with strangers who would become familiar with friends, with loved ones, with your parents, with your children, with your mentors, with the people that you do joint activity with. So I, I would like very much to end on a, on a hopeful note. Professor Ruth Feldman, thank you very, very much for taking the time. Thank you, Larry. It was a pleasure to talk to you. This was the third episode of the On Humans podcast and the first episode in a series of conversations about love. If you're interested in this and other topics that I explore in the podcast, please consider subscribing to it. This doesn't only help me immensely in this early stages of building the show, but it will also allow you to be notified of all future episodes, such as one coming up about the psychology of love and hate with Robert Sternberg the legendary psychologist who is not only the single most cited scholar on the topic of love, but who is amongst the top three most cited psychologists alive. It was a great pleasure interviewing Robert Sternberg, one of those rare chances that will probably not occur in my lifetime. Not again. I hope that you enjoy it, and I hope that you stay in the loop. Till next time, take care. <laughs>